2: Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton.
1: What he's done that has impacted our state thus far has changed our state in so many ways. It's unbelievable.
0: You made a promise to end the war on coal, and you've kept that promise. Thank goodness we
2: now have an administration to work closely with who's committed to regulatory reform, tax relief. We had the bullseye on us until you got here, so thank you for that. Because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we were able to give every one of our 66 employees an additional $1,000 over and above their normal annual
1: raises.
4: You've made a huge difference. Your tax cuts have made a difference. And I can tell you our people know that your tax cuts have made a difference. I can tell you that it's not crumbs to them. And we made sure that everyone there knew that the reason they got raises was because of the new tax laws. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here with me. Freestyle Friday is upon us. As you heard there from a bunch of different Trump voters at the uh, town hall in West Virginia yesterday... Some people think things are actually going quite well under the Trump administration. Some people are really, really happy. In fact, there was even a woman who uh, was brought to tears speaking about how much the Trump tax cuts have have helped her up to this point.
3: I said I wasn't going to cry.
5: Gosh. I just want to say thank you to um, you for the tax cuts. This is a big deal for our family. We really support you, and um, this is a big deal. These tax cuts are a big deal. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for fighting for us. Thank you for caring enough to allow us the opportunity to come here and tell you thank you to your face. My boys, my little 10 year old wants to be president one day. Hey. And... it'll happen.
4: So those are just n- normal Americans, right? And that's what they're focused on. Tax cuts, jobs, growth, national level economic policy and how it can benefit all Americans. Here's what it sounds like over at CNN in the same 24 hour period. He also revived his claim about rapists, that he was excoriated for, certainly not by his base, not by his uh, diehard supporters, in his announcement um, Mm -hmm. address, speech. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: And he just revived that as well.
3: This is just trump it's what he does i mean he
2: he
0: is not uh you know doesn't doesn't tie himself to standards of of uh of fact and objectivity in the way that any other republican or democratic politician would he simply decides to believe these things maybe he saw them on fox news uh you know i don't know maybe
4: he's watching alex jones but his habit is to continue to repeat them regardless uh, of them being consistently disproven by the media disproven by the media yeah Because we all think that they're great at fact-checking themselves, right? They don't get upset at the accusation of fake news because it's true. No, no, of course not. You see, while there's going to be a focus on everything other than what the president has done from most of the media, we are in the midst of what are actually good times in this country, optimistic times. And what people are talking about all the time as a trade war is really also part of a larger truth war that we are in the midst of a war for the truth remember how i was just telling you a couple of days ago how you weren't hearing a lot or maybe it was even yesterday but a few days ago you weren't hearing a lot about how the unemployment rate was 4.1 well the jobs numbers came out today and they're the lowest they've been in six months not great by the way they could be revised up and there's all kinds of caveats that go with that but all of a sudden today i start seeing reporting on the jobs numbers i'm like oh wow what a shock because they were below expectations you're going to hear about it but what that also then forces the media to do is to tell you well but the unemployment rate's 4.1 percent so 100,000 jobs instead of whatever it was expected 160 or 170 or something uh, that's not nearly as important as the fact that the unemployment rate is at 4.1 percent there are stories in fact i'm hoping to bring some of them to you in, in some detail Uh, The next couple of weeks, I'm doing some research and seeing some reporting on towns that are being brought back to life in the country. And it's been a recent phenomenon. There is a new economic dynamism and growth and things are going, dare I say, things are going well. But I'm seeing a lot of of angst and anxiety over the up and down of the stock market. and uh, You you look at the Wall Street Journal, it's the Wall Street Journal, so of course people are going to be very concerned about a rough day in the dow. You know, Monday it'll be it was down 570 some odd points today. Monday it's going to be up. I would, don't don't bet on that, but I'm just guessing. That's not that's, that's not financial advice at all. I'm just saying, Monday, you know, the the market will probably turn around or maybe Tuesday or who knows, but it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. All of the uh, the concerns over the market that people are saying come from the the trade war that we have to me it just solidifies that something really does need to be done. If the only way that we can have a prosperous economy is to ignore the massive, literally industrial scale theft of our intellectual property by China, if the only way that we can have then we're selling ourselves quite short. If the only way we're going to achieve prosperity is by just taking all kinds of abuse from the Chinese government and allowing for all kinds of chicanery. That's the word for Friday, by the way. We like that one thumbs up give it i give it like a seven it's not a nine or a ten It's like a seven i might work surfeit into the show at some point today too word for excess there's a surfeit of reporting on how the unemployment number i'm sorry how the jobs number is not what people expected it to be i can tell you that uh china's vowing to strike back at the u.s and you're seeing all these stories from people like oh my china could best us in one move and I have, to, I have to stop and think. There's a part of me that understands that journalists that want to get clicks have or tend to be or have a tendency toward being catastrophists. Right? Catastrophe is waiting around the next band. Oh, no. People read, you know. Is your soap killing you? Turn in, you know, tune in tonight at 11. I mean, oh, my gosh, you know. Is that thing that you do every day, in fact, going to bring about the end of humankind live at 10? Right, Catastrophe gets clicks. It gets attention. It gets numbers. So I understand at some level that pushes the narrative for the journalists about Trump's administration and and the trade war issue. But they take it to crazy lengths. I'm seeing stuff about how, you know, China could just well, China could just sell all of our treasuries. Seemingly or or ostensibly serious people write things like this. Oh, China will just sell all of our tre- all of our treasuries at once, just just to you know collapse U.S. economy. Like, well, you know, it's funny, but that if China does that, they'll collapse their own economy too. It doesn't work that way. They don't they don't have the ability to just shut us down and have everything. You know, who are they going to sell all their stuff to, folks? How are they going to make up for all that? And by the way, what it would do to the price of treasuries if they flooded the market with them? They they hold them. So they're they're gonna crash the trillions of dollars of US of U.S. treasuries that they currently hold. It makes no sense. Like I was saying, it does but if you all China could just, in one fell swoop, could take the United States down to its knees. I don't I don't think so. It certainly tells you a lot, though, about what some of the folks who report on this stuff really think about America's role and and the ability of our leadership to think strategically versus the ability of the Chinese leadership to think very long-term and strategically. They have not a lot of faith, not a lot of faith in our leaders. So, yeah, I, I see the stocks uh, getting slammed. I see people worry about the trade, uh, the trade war, but I think it will be limited. And we'll get through it, and there'll be a negotiation. I think this is a negotiation tactic. We've seen this time and again. We saw it with North Korea, right? Kim, Kim Jong-un talks tough. Trump talks tough back. Now they're going to sit down and chat and see what's going on. With the Mexican government, Trump has been, I think, engaged in a series of advances and, and pullbacks in order to try and get more for himself in a negotiation. Why would we think it's any different in dealing with China and tariffs? Look, the, the, the truth is, and at the end of the day, we want a prosperous American economy. We want a, a, a growing and relatively stable stock market. And we actually want a growing and stable China. It's not too, It's not in our interest to see the Chinese have a, an economy that disintegrates and the whole country to become very unstable. That's when you start worrying about, you know, maybe they just pick a war with somebody or something. You know, that that's not good. So we, we have similar interests here overall, but we've got to actually take some steps. We've got to take some steps in this process. And... The, the trade war that everyone is so worried about, I think, is is overblown. And that, that spooks the markets and people start to think, oh, my gosh, what is Trump doing? And just just give it some time. I, I don't think it's going to be anything nearly as bad as everyone has said so far. And all the people that I know that this is what they do, that we've had some of them on the show. They look at trade all day, all the time. They're Like, this is not going to lead to catastrophe. We just need to stay the course and stay calm. Uh, you know the regulatory pullback from the administration has been such a, a boost and and so powerful for job creation and for the economy in general. But you don't hear about that. I was I was joking around with the guys. They they actually had they had you know, Stormy Daniels on right before I came on. Every time I look up at CNN, they're Stormy Daniels. They're trying to make her the most famous person on the planet. They really are. they're going all in on let's just run stormy daniels updates day after day it's like they're one of those magazines you get in the grocery store that are like look at what so-and-so is wearing except they just do they only do it for stormy daniels there are important issues to discuss here make no make no mistake about it right immigration the things we talk about matter matter to you matter to me affect our lives and affect this country but for a lot of folks out there there's a desire to focus on everything other than what's really happening because the narratives that they've been spinning for such a long time are so obviously and demonstrably false so what do they do they just double down on more of the same all right let's get into uh well we could oh yeah let's no no we got it yeah i know i've had to go to a break but come on it's it's friday Do th- i just like hearing the action movie quotes it's fun action
5: Ooh, a job! A
4: Movie.
2: people keep asking if i'm back and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. Quote. You have a right to be
3: dead.
4: Fridays.
3: Action ah! movie quote Fridays. I know 8- Kung Fu. 844
4: You want to call in, see if you can beat the action movie quote master. I realize we need to either update those quotes. We, we guys, we got to pick some new ones. Or we can expand it beyond just action movie quotes. You know, when I was out in Indiana recently, some people came up and they—they they just on the spot wanted to throw action movie quotes at me. So this has now become a thing. It's almost like a secret handshake. Uh, I, I think we'll go. Do we go? Do we go? Uh, war movie quote Friday or comedy movie quote Friday? We should give that some thought. And everyone else can let me know if you're listening to this. facebookcom slash Buck Sexton. and hopefully more and more you are getting on Twitter as well, so we can talk in real ta- real time during the show. Oh, I have another plan I want to tell you about, and that is that I'm hoping to start doing a Facebook Live of part of the show. Ooh, see? These are things. We're, we're working on it. Producer Mike and John, we, we got plans, folks. All kinds of fun plans. Uh, so, And, we, and speaking of plans, a fantastic show ready for all of you. So stay right there. We'll be back.
2: I heard a whole lot of people in here talking tonight about this group and that group and domestic violence and blacks, and these minorities and that minority. What I want to know is, when are you all going to start standing up for the majority? And here's who the majority is. I'm the majority. I'm a law-abiding citizen who's never shot anybody. It seems like every time we have one of these shootings, nobody wants to blame. put the blame where it goes, which is at the shooter's feet. You want to put it at my feet. It does not make any sense. The law abiding citizens of this community and many communities around this country. We're the first ones taxed and the last ones considered and the first ones punished when things like this happens.
4: Amen. That uh that, that man is absolutely spot on. You know, there's he's referring to a debate in North Carolina as to whether they should have they should continue with a gun and knife show, right, producer Mike? That's what the Correct. Yeah, his name was uh, Mark Robinson. Yeah, Mark Robinson, and and he just went off because he's like, why, why is it now? Why are we now going to punish people? Because gun and knife show, people have been looking forward to it. They made preparations. They're either going to go there to buy stuff, or a lot of them want to sell things there, part of their livelihood. You know, get their brand out there. Some of them I'm sure probably you know make their own knives. I actually just spoke to a uh, an artisan knife maker recently. He's going to send me one. I'm excited about it. I know people. I got friends. I like, I I just, I I like knives. I don't know, it's a whole other discussion. So, but here's a guy who's saying, okay, so something bad happens in the country. There's a shooting somewhere. And now we have to, being the people of of this town in uh, North Carolina, in Greensboro. Oh, Greensboro, we got a lot lot of listeners in Greensboro, actually. So, uh, but in Greensboro, North Carolina, they're talking about whether they should have this gun and knife show as if stopping it would be what? An effort at, at solidarity with the, the Parkland March for Our Lives or something? It doesn't make any sense at all. You know, people say things like, what are you going to do? Do knife control? And I say, don't, don't say that out loud because the answer is some people would say, yes, they, they actually want to do that. In London, they've tried this now. It was, a think, about a year ago because, you know, London has more murders this year so far than New York City does. Just remember that. And London tried to ban online sales of knives to people as though that's going to. So any knife, as you know, has is sharp, has a pointy end and can hurt people. But London figured or the the UK actually figured, well, we should ban knife sales from the Internet. You got to go buy them in person. Okay, I I have yet to hear of anyone with ill intent anywhere in the world, really, who's like I just who, who was free, who wasn't behind bars, who was like, you know, I couldn't get a knife. Couldn't find a knife anywhere. It's a, it's a pretty common household item. But they've tried that in the UK. So when people say, oh, Buck, what are they going to do? Do knife control or, or car control or something after one of these terrible incidents with other terrorists or some psycho? The answer is, yeah, they do want to try that. And this guy, uh, Mark Robinson, stands up and says, why do I have to have my, forget about even just my rights as a law abiding citizen? But why do I have to have my day inconvenienced because of what? some evil person did somewhere else in the country why do we base decisions like this on things that have nothing to do with you and me the good decent law-abiding responsible people that are the overwhelming majority in the united states you know the left doesn't really have any answers for this but you have to remember they come from a place of the state should really be in charge of more and you say buck in charge of more when it comes to what everything the state should always be in charge of more. There is no place in your life right now that if you sat down with a social justice warrior, if you sat down with a progressive, that person would agree with you and say, yeah, you know, the state's, the state's doing enough. Yeah, let's tell the state to back off. No, no, they, they, they want to make sure that the government has the maximum possible authority in every arena of government action, including in arenas where the government should have no action whatsoever. So, look, I think it just struck a chord with people. It certainly struck a chord with the folks in Greensboro that, yeah, this man, uh, Mark Robinson, makes such an impassioned speech on, you know, let us have our gun and knife show. We are law-abiding people. This is America. sometimes people joke around with that. They're like, yeah, I mean, this is America, isn't it? No, that really needs to be said here. And we shouldn't have momentary pangs of anxiety over whether we're being politically correct enough and have that determine how we live our day-to-day lives. It's just nonsense. It is completely, completely out there. By the way, we've got uh, Ron Kessler joining later on about his book where he was getting a lot of access to the White House, so he'll set some of that straight. Got a lot more show coming your way, team. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
2: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back.
5: Team Schmidt, what's your take on this Washington Post piece?
1: I was just thinking, I was like a subject. and a target it's kind of like to me the difference between being like engaged and married like one before the other the and, and, and that's right, 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 true neither and,
2: ends well and
1: uh, well I, uh, no stephanie not necessarily uh, no but look i you know I, the large issue here is is the russian federation you know, vladimir putin across all of the west are attacking democracies and attacking the idea of democracy so we talk about this country as a place and we talk about america as a place where people live and things happen but we don't talk a, a, as mean? much as we should and as much as we used to about america as an idea and the russian attack is on the idea of liberty idea. Of freedom He is undermining the notion of the capacity of the american people for self-governance He's attacking our institutions and the lubricants of the democratic system are faith, trust and belief. And Vladimir Putin is attacking that. And this president, and there's a Russian term, useful idiot for an unwilling or a willing collaborator to their aims. And that our president is a useful idiot. <laughs> how about to, just an idiot? How about way, just an idiot? Because
4: Russian- that's what this guy Schmidt sounds like when he's talking about Russia. You know, like this thing and, you know, uh, used a couple big words and the lubricants of democracy and, you know, what is is he even saying? But I'll focus on the substance, right? He sounds like a buffoon, but let's actually, and and he's the one, the only one in the Sarah Palin movie who comes off well, by the way, is that guy, which is all you need to know, because that was a, a horrific hit piece that HBO put together on Sarah Palin years ago. And the only guy, he's played by Woody Harrelson, Doesn't look like Woody Harrelson. The only guy, though, who comes off like a good person in that movie pretty much, other than John McCain, is that dude. I've never met him. I don't care. His work on TV is poor. So, but but I love this. Here he's going on calling Trump a useful idiot about Russia the same day, the same day that the Trump administration puts additional sanctions in place on some of the Russians that are closest to Vladimir Putin. So the Trump administration is going after top Russian power players today. And you still have Steve Schmidt over at MSNBC. You got all the this guy, you know, the lubricants. Guy just doesn't know anything about Russia, doesn't know anything about the KGB or the FSB or any of the above. Right? has no idea what the hell he's talking about. Just doesn't. But sure enough, you know, if you're on MSNBC. Say that. Say that Trump is a Russian stooge. There was actually an article from uh, the Onion, and I'm paraphrasing. You know, the Onion's a a parody news site. It's very funny sometimes. And they had it that Rachel Maddow does a whole show where she just holds up a, a photo of Vladimir Putin and, and gesticulates at it frantically, which is pretty much what happens. Putin, ooh, scary Putin. Russia has. That the not even in the top 10 by nominal GDP in terms of global economies, folks, Russia is not that important. But even putting that aside for a second, Trump is given buck slaps to Putin and Russia left and right based on action, based on policy. And they never change. The storyline never changes. It's, you know, Trump is a Putin stooge. He's a Putin stooge. The measures were announced by the Treasury Department today, targeting 17 senior Russian government officials and the state-owned Russian weapons trading company Rosoboronexport, which has long-standing ties to Syria and its subsidiary, Russian financial corporate bank, according to CNN. The White House said such targeted sanctions would help to ensure that Russian oligarchs profiting from the Kremlin's destabilizing activities, including its interference of western democratic elections would face consequences for their actions so what's left what else do they want them to do are we are we really supposed to just fire some missiles at some russian installation somewhere you know because of the sock puppets on facebook this is what i always say it's never enough whatever trump does it's not enough because they have a storyline and they stick to it they just do not care they do not care. They're staying with it, even if the ratings uh, collapse. I was just talking to Mike before. CNN, can they put Stormy Daniels and Putin on the screen more than they do? I think the answer is no. They're going to they're gonna have to pay them royalties or something. It's just completely out of line, night after night after night. And what's really interesting is these are people saying, oh, you're not based in reality and everything else. They do not adjust one iota, what they say about the president after he does things where how could you not adjust? How could it not be taken into account that the president of the United States, his government just went after some of Putin's closest buddies financially in a way that could really hurt them and going after Russian arms companies that are tied to what's going on in Syria? You know, We're at a point now where anyone who goes on TV and says, you know, Trump is a Russian stooge, should be asked the question, what do you want him to do? I want him to condemn I want him to condemn. Okay, well, how many times? The White House officially condemns all kinds of Russian behavior. You want Trump to personally insult Putin? I think the answer is yes. I think that's what they're going for. I want Trump to tell Putin that he's a stupid face and I don't like him. Lubricants of democracy. At what point can we say that this has become not just dishonest, but destructive to the country? I think we've long since passed it. I think we've passed the point now where we can think that anyone who really believes that Trump is a Russian stooge is acting in good faith. At a minimum, they'd have to say, wow, okay, well, Trump has really responded to the torrent of criticism over time about how he doesn't do enough when it comes to Russia. Doesn't do enough. And as I keep telling you, it is literally never enough. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that Trump can do that will make the critics of his Russia, never mind Russia policy, just his, his attitude toward Russia happy. I mean, most importantly, when you, when you look at this, you've got to keep in mind, it's only downside for the president of the United States to personally go after and insult another head of state. It is only downside. Full stop. There is nothing about it, absolutely nothing, that could bring any positive outcome whatsoever. And anyone who's ever worked in foreign policy or national security knows that, and yet they just poke and goad. And they cackle. The hyena arena just keeps doing what they always do. You can hear the cackles in the background if you if you listen long enough. That's what they do. It, it's just, we've reached a point now where I, I, I can't handle it anymore. I really just lose my mind on some of this stuff. It is overwhelming how disgraceful the analysis about the administration and russia and everything and i mean the, the Mueller probe all of it it's just such a waste such a terrible waste all right um by the way we're gonna talk about the chappaquiddick movie i saw the whole thing it's really worthwhile we'll get into the details of that later on in the show so stay with me for that and much more
3: I think it's actually a great thing, and here's why. I think that what he's forcing people to do is have a conversation and and people to band together and work together, and, like, you can't really address something that's not revealed. He's bringing out an ugly side of America that we wanted to believe was gone, and it's still here, and we still got to deal with it. We have to have the conversation. We have to have tough conversations. We have to talk about the N-word, and we have to talk about why white men are so privileged in this
4: country. So that was Jay-Z on the uh, David Letterman show, who usually I would say, well, you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion and he's an entertainer. And why waste my time on his political analysis? But but I really do have a, a point of, of curiosity here, and that is the left's uh, obsession with Donald Trump as a racist. They really believe it. And I always stop it. Look, the the stuff that they say about his treatment of women and everything, I, at least I understand that there is some basis for the allegations that they will make in terms of, OK, you know, did did he do this to this woman or not? Right. When it comes to racism, though, I sit here, I'm like, why do we keep hearing Donald Trump is so racist? Because he made Obama Produces birth certificate was is that really what it, and, and I ask this not rhetorically I really I really don't understand I mean that the president goes out of his way the president goes out of his way to talk about how happy he is that the uh, black unemployment rate in this country is at a historic low uh, the president by by all accounts by everybody who knows him and there are a lot of people that I know who know him there are people around this office who know him quite well is just not even a little bit racist. So why do they stay with this theme? I mean, I know you're saying, Buck, they do it because it's politically convenient. They do it because it's a way of tearing down the president. No, I I understand that. But to me, it just seems to ring so hollow. And yet, I have to be honest, I'm I'm familiar with the polling on this. And... African-Americans in this country the black community is really anti-Trump overwhelmingly in the polls and I don't know if it's just because of what the media I I think what I'm getting at here is I think it's because the media said he's racist so much that people believe it even in the absence of not not even just evidence but any basis for whatsoever Where, where is this all coming from? I just I don't I don't really understand. I think it's destructive and it's uh, it's troubling. Um, But then again, we are at a time now where people say all kinds of things. They don't have to back up. It's just about is it effective? Does it work? You know, I I saw Newt. uh, What it was earlier today, and he had some words about the cultural civil war that we are in.
5: The fact is, we're in the middle of a cultural civil war. And the language is the language of a civil war. Yep. Uh, people say horrendous things, and they mean them. I mean, I, I think on the left, the level of hostility uh, at every single zone, uh, if, you, if you look at people like Marco Rubio being charged with—he's uh, he's responsible for murder if he takes money from the NRA. I mean, this is the kind of horrific language
4: that makes it impossible to bring people together— because they really are that far apart. And, you know, you see, you see this on the gun control issue. You see this on, on every aspect of the left's opposition to Donald Trump. It's not that Trump doesn't have great ideas on, or, or that they just oppose his ideas on taxes or whatever. It's that Trump is, that they will say, a uh, rapist, a racist, uh, a, a traitor. These are the consistent lines of argument. And that's why, you know, when I heard Jay-Z saying, you know, that that Trump has unearthed this uh, this hatred that still lingers. And he also talks about white privilege, which I perhaps will address more of that another time. I'm just focused more on the the notion that Trump has uh, been so clearly racist in some way that the media keeps talking about it. I keep saying where when they don't even have him. Oh, but what about, about the, the Mexican uh, Mexicans not sending us their best or those comments? Okay, well, but that has nothing to do with the black community, for one. So I, I'm, I'm still stuck on what it is about Trump that the media is so set in thinking that he's really bad for the black community and thinking that he, he is or he's racist. That's what they say. They say he's racist. They casually put this out there. And I'm just here to, to remind everyone that's very destructive very destructive to say the president is a racist you know I, I didn't think that obama was as uh well i was very critical of the president but i always criticized him on policy you know i didn't i i never played the game of uh you know criticizing you know his family or did anything that was i thought uh, below the belt you know nothing that was that was untoward um and and i, I just would expect well, you know, this is the problem. When you look for integrity in the media today, you end up just coming up completely empty. You know, but I, I never threw cheap shots at the last president. It was always I disagreed with them, And all, all I see are cheap shots at Trump all the time. And there's stuff that people could really disagree with him on. And there's stuff that they could legitimately and do object to him on the basis of what he represents and his ideas. But instead of engaging on that and engaging in that discussion, it's just he's a racist, he's a rapist, he's a traitor. And I'm probably forgetting. I mean, those are the big ones that, I, that you'll hear. I'm trying to think what else. Oh, he's, he's, he's like so dumb that he can't do anything. He can beat the most sophisticated election machine in the history of, of the planet with the, the pro Hillary effort that they just all threw together it was all the king's horses and all the king's men. So, in a he, he is really a political genius. I mean, you have to say that. What he pulled off is the, the biggest political upset of my lifetime, probably going to be of anyone's lifetime. And yet they say he's a, he's an income poop, he's an ignoramus, he's a racist. He's a racist, they say. Um, I just don't, you know. And I, I know that right now this is where media matters, and some of these other types would say, "Oh, well, remember when he failed to, you know, with David Duke and the Klan? He he didn't disavow him quickly enough." And I'm like. You know, every interview the guy goes into in the primary, practically, they're saying, what do you think about David Duke? David Duke is a loser no one cares about. The guy's a snake. He's scum. Who cares? Why is a presidential candidate even being asked about it? You know, this would be like saying, well, why'd you stop? You know, do do you beat your wife? Do you beat your wife? You ask someone a hundred times, and eventually they're going to go, wait, why why am I even being, they're going to have a moment of being flustered. Oh, see? He must be a wife beater. I just, I feel like maybe uh, it's just the frustration that I, you know, Jay-Z is someone who's been so fortunate, incredibly fortunate. I mean, was a crack dealer at one point in time, which I think is interesting that society's like, yeah, you know, whatever. Definitely ruined some people's lives. But side note, because, you know, he had to hustle and now he's a great success story. But the guy's worth probably upwards of a billion dollars now, certainly in the hundreds of millions. And he thinks that America under Trump is some kind of uh, some kind of dystopian, fascist, racist state. Obviously, and I I think that it's so damaging. I, I think about you know young uh, young black Americans in this country and and who within the black community they can see as as you know financial and uh, professional models people to emulate. And some of, when I so when I see someone like Jay Z, I just think to myself, this is just this is not helping. It really isn't. But you know it's what we have to deal with. All right, we've got Ron. Kessler joining us here to talk about his book about the Trump White House. Well, he'll be able to shed some light, I think, on uh, what's going on here. So we will get into uh, that with him coming up. And then also some updates on the Pulse nightclub shooting, which was a while ago. It's a couple of years ago now. But new information that came out that I think is uh, worth spending some of our time on. And uh, then I will also, in the third hour of the show, bring some surprises your way. So stay with me.
2: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back.
4: Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We're in the midst of an hour two now, my friends. If you'd like to call in 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK, and uh, we have... An author with us. It is Freestyle Friday. We are mixing it up. We've got Ron Kessler on the line. He is the New York Times bestselling author of 21 nonfiction books. His latest is The Trump White House, Changing the Rules of the Game, which which is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Ron, great to have you on. Thank you for having me. All right. Tell us about, you know, there have already been some books written about the Trump White House. I have a feeling you've got some new and very worthwhile information for us. What's going on? Well, you know,
5: Trump likes to project this tough guy image and doesn't like the public to know anything about what he is really like. And this book explains that, uh, and, uh, whether it's, uh, the fact that he gives out hundred dollar bills to, uh, uh, people who move furniture for him or, or, or what kind of uh hairspray he uses, uh, and, it explains why on the one hand you hear these uh often uh, outrageous comments from him and uh, tweets from him but at the same time when people meet with him they come away with a totally different impression he uh he listens uh he's uh thoughtful and overall the results have been amazing you know if you look at the economy the the soaring uh stock market, the uh, uh, record low unemployment rate, record low black unemployment rate, ISIS almost being defeated, uh, Saudi Arabia going after uh, uh, Islamic terrorist uh, ideology, and now uh, Trump is about to meet with a North Korean leader. These are the real achievements, just as we saw with Reagan, who uh, got rid of the Soviet Union and got the economy uh, roaring. Uh, but both are uh, reviled by the media and certainly in Trump's case there are plenty of things to uh, be concerned about uh, and I go into all that, all that based on really uh, unique access. I did interview him it's the only interview that he has given for a book or will give for a book he said as president uh, and uh, had access to his staff as well. I've known him for two decades and so that helped you know with the uh insights but at the same time um i uh decided i'm going to be a journalist first and uh i don't care what he thinks about the book and uh, i think it's a good read
4: well ron one of the stories that we see repeated constantly in the media is of a white house in chaos and a white house full of people who quite honestly based on what the mainstream is is putting out there a lot of them have very little respect for this president. What, what's your sense of all that, and, and what's your response?
5: Well, I think the business about respect comes from the uh, the uh, what I call a novel uh, by Michael Wolf. You know, he really made up most of that stuff. You know, he said 100% of the staff and and 100% of the family members have no respect for him and think he's, uh, you know, uh, incompetent. Was, that's absurd. Um, certainly uh, working for Trump, is very taxing. <clears throat> He'll blow up at people. And of course, uh, there's this turnover and everyone wouldn't feel he's afraid they will, they will be fired. And that doesn't attract new people. You're absolutely right. Um, I think he has figured out that now he's going to go with people that he's known for a long time that he's comfortable with, uh, as opposed to people that others proposed. And <clears throat> I think that'll make a difference. Uh, but that certainly is is one of the uh, negatives of his presidency.
4: We're speaking to Ron Kessler. He's New York Times bestselling author. His latest is the Trump White House changing the rules of the game. Um, Ron, how much were you able to get a sense of uh, the the weight that the whole special counsel and Russia collusion investigation has put on the president personally?
5: You know, I, I asked him about that when I interviewed him. I said, why are you so agitated? There's really nothing to it. And he said, "Well, I just want the truth." And you know, but he, wasn't, he, wasn't, uh, he didn't go into a great fury about it. He, he, was, he was calm about it. A lot of what he does is, is just for effect. I interviewed Norma Forderer, who was his top aide for 26 years. when she joined the organization. There were only seven other employees, so she knew him better than almost anybody on both the business and the social side. And She, she said there are two Donald Trumps. One is the one who appears on TV and makes these outrageous comments to get attention for his brand. And of course now his presidency. And then there's the real Donald who I mentioned, uh, you know, is, is quite different, very, uh, thoughtful listens. Uh, so, uh, and a lot of what he does is, is for negotiating, uh, he'll, uh, claim that he's going to put tariffs on China, but meanwhile he expects to come up with, Improved uh, tra- trade deals. There's an anecdote in the book about um, uh, Mar-a-Lago and uh, Martha Stewart showing up one day, and Tony Senecal, the Mar-a- Mar-a-Lago butler, uh, answered the door. She said she would appreciate it if he could give give a tour of Mar-a-Lago. So he said, "Great, I'll set it up for tomorrow at three o'clock." And when Trump came in, he told them, "He said great," but then later in the day. Tony went to check to see if Donald needs anything in his private quarters. And Trump started screaming at him just out of control and called him a dumbass. He should have scheduled it for noon tomorrow when the club members would be here. They would see Martha Martha would see them. Uh, but at that moment, Melania walked in and she said to Donald, I don't think you should be talking to Tony in that tone. And nothing more was said except the next day, Donald was in the um, living room of mar lago and handed Tony $2,000 and $20 bills of all things. So that was his form of apology, but it also shows you that Melania stands up to him. And in fact, Melania is a very powerful force. She uh, sits in on meetings. She comes up with solutions and strategy. I quote Ryan's Priebus in the book as saying that her judgment is in- impeccable, so she really uh, impresses the aides, and uh, is is clearly the most powerful uh, aide in the White House.
4: Well, Ron, I can say that uh, your latest, which is the Trump White House changing the rules of the game, is on my read list. And just as a quick aside, your book Inside the CIA uh, I read on the advice of some uh, government folks many years ago before I joined the CIA. So I very much appreciate your work. Thank you so much, Ron. Great to have you on team. We are going to roll into a, a break here in just a couple minutes. Oh, one day I'll tell you the story about, you know, I try not to get into too much of this. I, I knew a little bit uh, of the Trumps when I was growing up here in New York. One of my favorites is actually when I was 14 was the first time I met, or maybe I was 15. I met Donald and uh, he told me, and I'm not going to give you the full details now, but he's like, yeah, you seem like a guy who could handle yourself. And I don't know if that meant like, I'm polite and good with adults, which at that age is the thing. Or, you know, if I got into a scrap, I could probably do better than people thought. I always like to think it's the latter. I think he meant the former, <laughs> but that was the first time I ever met him, and that was that was 20 years ago. 20 years ago. He wouldn't, he, he wouldn't remember. I did not get a stack of $2,000 in 20s, though, so that would have been even cooler. Uh, anyway, team, I, I want to talk to you about uh, some updates as a result of the prosecution of the Pulse nightclub's a shooter's wife i'll give you some updates on that when we come back after the break stay with me i like to follow up on important news stories well after they've fallen out of the news cycle i don't like to just give analysis and then move away from the whole story and forget that we made at the time of the story certain uh, there were certain reports that were out there we made proclamations the media was saying this was true, that was true. We think this is likely to be true. We shouldn't just forget all those conversations. We should hold ourselves to account, right? The Pulse nightclub shooting, many of you will recall, was a horrific uh, bloodbath at a gay nightclub in uh, Orlando back in 2016. And I've, well, I, anal- I <laughs> analyzed it at the time for different networks and, and also on radio as a terrorist attack. But then also there was this discussion afterwards about police tactics. But what was never in dispute, in, for at least from the earliest days, was the notion that this was at least most likely a terrorist act that was all about the Islamic State, right? Because the guy was saying, I- I'm here on behalf of the Islamic State. I'm doing this for the Islamic State. But then there was a, a kind of a, a shift in the thinking in the days after the 2016 Pulse Massacre. Um, and it was all about how this was a hate crime. People were saying, no, it wasn't a terrorist attack so much as it was a hate crime against the LGBT community. Uh, here's just a and by the way, this is a piece. From the Huffington Post, I'll pull from all over the place to get to the truth here or to get a different perspective on it. Everyone got the Pulse massacre story completely wrong is the headline here. Now, the Huffington Post is a left-wing website. Why is it revisiting the issue of the Pulse nightclub? Well, part of it is that there was this assumption. Islamic extremist attacks nightclub uh, that is an LGBTQ-friendly nightclub And kills dozens of people, 49 dead, 53 wounded. Perhaps he was a jihadist and also a bigot. Or maybe he was mostly driven to this mass murder by his hatred of those who are in the LGBT community. Right? Maybe that was even part of his radicalization. These were the theories. At the time, you had the Daily Beast right. Let's say it plainly. This was a mass slaying aimed at LGBT people. It was undeniably a homophobic hate crime, according to the New Republic. And some were speculating, in fact, and this was the story that was put out there with no underlying evidence whatsoever. In fact, the initial reporting on it was quickly shown to be false. But they they ran with the story that Omar Mateen, who is an evil psychopath and, and a jihadist, okay, but Omar Mateen was a closeted homosexual, was initially the story. That's what they were saying. He was gay. And so he did this as a hate crime kind of against himself. And there was all this other all this other stuff. Meanwhile, the evidence was that he had pledged allegiance to the Islamic State during the attack. But there was still this effort to try and uh, make it about a hate crime because it fit the narrative of the left, right? Hate crime is something the left wants to talk about. Islamic jihad, not something the left wants to talk about. Well, now we have a follow-up here. And that is that, based on what we know, Omar Mateen didn't pick the Pulse nightclub because it was uh, an LGBTQ nightclub. He just went to the nearest place he could find where there were a whole bunch of people. He didn't even know it was a gay nightclub had no idea that's what we found out now he apparently asked someone in earnest uh in earnest why where all the women were here's what they read this piece and, and by the way this has come out because of the trial of Salman, who was his who's his wife was his wife and she just was found not guilty even though pretty clear she knew what was going on but she didn't take any affirmative steps to help him so she was found not guilty uh but here's what they say in the Daily Beast piece. Salmon claimed she knew Mateen was headed to Pulse that night and that they'd scouted the location together. But within a few days of the massacre, the government had reason to believe her statement was false. Based on data from their cell phones, neither Mateen or Salmon had ever been in the vicinity of Pulse before. On the night of the attack, Mateen first went to Disney Springs and Eve Orlando, both of which had heavy visible security before ending up at Pulse nightclub after a Google search for downtown Orlando nightclub. Notably, his search did not include the words gay or LGBT. This was a crime of opportunity. He just wanted to find a crowded place. This was his version of the Bataclan massacre. And this was a committed jihadist that was just looking to engage in mass murder. Had absolutely nothing to do with targeting the LGBT community. And there's zero evidence that Omar Mateen was, in fact, himself gay, despite news reports in the days afterwards suggesting as much. So you can see the media's lens at work here. You can see how all of a sudden they start seeing things that aren't there because of the way they approach things. Now, it, it doesn't in any way uh, affect the gravity of the situation, whether he targeted for one reason or another. It was a mass murder of innocents. It was a horrific terrorist act on U.S. soil one of many by the way inspired by the Islamic State that occurred under the Obama administration's watch but you can just see once again how the way that they approach things the narrative that the media has in their minds affects the way they cover these events and that's why it's so essential to ask the questions that's why you can't take the first the second or even the third series of reports sometimes on these events especially when it comes to motivation by the way, you'll also note one other thing. Omar Mateen went to two other sites and decided not to attack because they had a visible and armed security presence. You mean that good guys with guns and gals, but an armed security presence can in fact deter mass slaughter? That was never picked up as part of the story, was it? And don't you think that's somewhat worth working into our own discussions? of events that have been happening recently in this country. He picked the nightclub at random. And so much of the reporting that came afterwards was influenced by the perception on the left that surely he had to be an anti-gay bigot as well as a jihadist. And I would note that there were some reporters who weren't even sure about the jihadist part, despite him pledging allegiance to the Islamic State. Because they had a preconceived notion of what the story was they wanted to write beforehand. And don't even get me started on the fact that you had the FBI after this on orders, I I am sure, from the attorney general herself, Loretta Lynch, or some very senior Obama appointee, that the FBI decided to redact parts of a transcript of Omar Mateen from inside the Pulse nightclub in 2016, where he was saying things like, I pledge allegiance to the Islamic State. I'm doing this on behalf of Allah. Anybody with a, a... Ninth grade reading level would have been able to fill in all of the blanks in the redacted transcript of the open line, unclassified phone call this guy made to a police department. But the Obama administration wanted to redact that. It's, it's fascinating now that we have a much fuller. A much fuller sense of the facts here to go back and look at how all this was reported and look at what people were saying and get a a much clearer picture of how the media approaches these kinds of events. It's also worth noting that there was, I think, quite obviously, an effort on behalf of the Democrat media to downplay terrorist attacks however they could when it came to the Islamic State. So that also figured into this, right? A hate crime was a rallying would be a rallying cry for the left, and they would be able to mobilize politically in response to that. A terrorist attack that was at random and just killed our fellow americans and fellow innocents here on u.s soil that seems like an obama administration failure so i think that very clearly had an influence on how all this came out so i wanted to follow up on the pulse nightclub story we've got much more coming up team i'll be right back
2: he's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth the buck never stops. Question to you is, will you do the same thing this year, the night of the White House Correspondents Center?
5: Well, you know, I did the gridiron dinner a few weeks ago, and that was really terrific. We had a lot of fun and it was good. But I, I sort of feel that the press is so bad. It's so fake. Yeah. It's so made up. I mean, sources say, and they have no sources.
4: Don't do it, Mr. President don't go to the white house correspondence dinner you didn't last year you had a rally instead it worked out great do the same thing the white house correspondence dinner is an institution of the democrat media left you know i went to it some years ago Uh, i was very early on in my blaze career and it was kind of a hey buck you can go to this because we have extra tickets and no one at the blaze particularly wants to go down to D.C. to go to it. And I said, all right, sure. I will go to the White House correspondence Dinner. So I did. And I can tell you that it was a bacchanal of exaggerated importance and just the most annoying narcissism you can imagine. A lot of people who think of themselves as important and prominent and known but not quite famous gathering together to look at each other and talk to each other and take measure of one another in a night that is I can tell you just boring I left I'm gonna tell you the true story so I was down there and I was with there a few of my colleagues from that period were with me as well and we ended up deciding that it wasn't really all that fun to sit at the Overflow table. I think I sat next to, I kid you not, some guy who was. So this is at the White House correspondence dinner in 2012, I think. And I was sitting there next to a guy who I think was. His name might as well have been Dieter. And I think he sold refrigeration equipment or something. He's like, Yeah, we keep it very cold. And I'm like, What are you doing at the White House? Oh, we are a sponsor. We sponsor the, the German equivalent of the English translation of the German translation of Der Spiegel. And I was like, uh, so I'm I'm clearly not at the cool kids' table, am I? Was that a joke about how cold we make it? So I I wasn't exactly loving it. I I remember also I couldn't really see the stage. It was one of those things. I might as well have had a table in the kitchen. You can imagine a couple of Blaze tickets. And this was when the Blaze, by the way, was a, a very... A widely trafficked website it was doing really really well but the tickets that were left over were not exactly uh in the center with all the hollywood folks and cnn you know they call it nerd prom i mean when i say they i don't mean we i mean the actual journalists who go which is a form of false self-deprecation they don't think that they're nerds they just like the false humility of calling it nerd prom in fact they aspire to be much more like Hollywood, but they have to claim nerddom so that they can convince themselves that what they do is based on wisdom, experience, knowledge, and hard work, when in reality, a vast majority of particularly TV journalists are just actors who weren't pretty enough, male or female, to make it big. That's what you usually get. You get a lot of people in the traditional TV news media Who could have been soap opera actors, but instead they're reading lines off of a prompter. So there's a weird insecurity that they generally feel, especially when they're around Hollywood types. But then those who are at the very pinnacle of the TV journalism profession tend to think of themselves as journalists. Like they're changing America and telling the truth to the people and all that, you know, make believe Dan Rather, Edward R. Murrow hoopla nonsense. But I just remember thinking this is so boring the speeches were super boring. No one really cares. you know. We, we gather here to remind ourselves of the importance of journalism in America. It is critical to our democracy at the White House Correspondents' Dinner to ensure that... Fa- oh, my gosh. I, I couldn't drink the $8 Merlot that they had put on our table fast enough. I did leave early and went to the BuzzFeed party... And I can neither confirm nor deny that there was a pretty good amount of Gangnam Style, but things were, getting, things were getting freaky and frisky up on that dance floor. Was I in black tie? Sure. Does the cummerbund slow down the buck? My friends, I think you know the answer to that. But at least the BuzzFeed party had booze and music, and I was with my peers. The, and they had the TV screens on of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, so you could see it. It was super boring. But back back to why Trump shouldn't go. Trump shouldn't go because what we've just seen this week is a reminder with Kevin Williamson, the former National Review writer, ousted because of the digital outrage mob from the Atlantic. What we've seen is that the left has control of certain institutions, particularly academia, the media, journalism. And we're not going to be able to win them over. And we're not going to be able to convince them to play fair. There is absolutely no way that Trump showing up at the White House correspondence dinner will do anything other than feed the narcissism and self-importance of all of the assembled left-wing anti-Trump Democrat DNC operatives pretending to be gumshoe journalists who will be in attendance. Trump bested them last year by just doing what he does by not playing their game and by not playing by their rules. Why would he break with that winning formula now? I, I can't imagine how anyone would advise him to the contrary. Uh, I just think that the only the only reason I believe that maybe Trump shows up, and this is, now I am trying to get inside the head of the commander-in-chief for a moment here, the only reason I think he wouldn't show up, is, or he would show up rather, is because he doesn't want anyone to think that he couldn't take the heat. He clearly can. But I this president, there's a, a lot of competitiveness in him, especially when it comes to taking on the media. And I think he I, I think that there's a, a sense that he I'm guessing he has a feeling that he could show up even though it's the lion's den, even though they're going to be. They, see, the problem is they're going to pretend to be respectful and then they'll actually get in their jabs and play dirty. It's sort of like being a conservative who goes on air at CNN, they pretend that they want to hear what you have to say and that they're really just in pursuit of the truth. But at the first opportunity, they blindside you, they undermine you and they, they play dirty. And that is absolutely what will happen at the correspondence dinner if Trump goes. So I just don't see it as being worthwhile. You'll notice I haven't wanted to go back to that thing for the food stinks, by the way. Another part of the food is just trash. So I always have to laugh. I'm like, so I sit at a table with people I don't get to pick that I don't want to hang out with necessarily, generally not, and I eat rubber chicken and sit there and hear lots of boring speeches, and I have to be wearing black tie because I'm not a savage, this is just not fun. So I've never gone back, even though I very easily could have gone back a number of years, just because it doesn't strike me as something that would be fun to do. And so I have avoided it up to this point in time. I also think it's important for conservatives to maintain a healthy contempt for the mainstream media. I really do. That, that's a part of the job description now. You've got to remember that just like with academia and so many of the other areas of liberal dominance, it's not about fair to them. It's not about meeting you halfway. They don't want to be your friend. They don't want to hear your opinion. It's just about crushing the other side. So how does Trump crush them at the White House Correspondents Dinner? Don't go and hold the rally, which will be far more entertaining than anything that pack of journalists decides to do.
0: Well, I like the people. But the job, I understand the people. No, I don't like the job. You don't like the job. No, I'm an executive branch guy. I'm not a legislative branch. Eight years you did it, though seven soon to be eight if I make it if I don't get really recall if I don't get recalled you're like one of
2: these guys ticking the boxes on the I jail can tell cell you wall.
0: I can tell you right now I have 19 more drives to the airport before this session is over to the extent men judge themselves based on what they do for a living I don't have a lot to show for the last
4: seven years if I open something's happened with Trey gowdy I can't pretend to know what it is I might have Some guesses to offer you here on the show, but uh, this is not the Trey Gowdy that we came to know during the Benghazi hearings. This is not the Trey Gowdy that people were speaking about as a possible attorney general. This seems to be a man who has lost his faith, certainly in the Republican Party and in the GOP. That was from an interview, what I just played you. An interview with Vice. The interview is actually Michael Moynihan, someone I've had on radio uh, many times in the past. And he just asks some very straightforward questions, and Trey Gowdy responds in a way that makes you think that something has really changed in his thinking.
2: What do you make of the Republican Party in 2018?
4: The goal is to win.
0: That's all that the Republican Party cares about. That's the goal goal is to win.
4: Now, at some level, I'm sure if pushed on this, Trey Gowdy, the soon to be former congressman, would say that, of course, the goal is to win. That's what every political party wants to do. But the implication and in the context of the discussion he's having here, seems like Trey Gowdy is being very cynical at a minimum about the Republican Party. It seems like something has happened that has, as I said, shattered his faith in the GOP. He was asked specifically about whether Trump was fit for office in the interview, and he said yes. So I'm just wondering, how does one go from this Trey Gowdy that we all remember from the Benghazi hearings?
0: No, that, no, no, no sir, with all due respect, they do not. We're, we just heard. Email after email after email about Libya and Benghazi that Sidney Blumenthal sent to the Secretary of State. I don't care if he sent it by Morse code, carrier pigeon, smoke signals, the fact that he happened to send it by email is irrelevant. What is relevant is that he was sending information to the Secretary of State. That is what's relevant. Now with respect to the subpoena, if he'd bothered to answer the telephone calls of our committee, he wouldn't have needed a subpoena. Would the gentleman yield? I'll be happy to, but you you need to make sure the entire record is correct, Mr. Collins. And that's
3: exactly what I want to do. Well, then go ahead. I'm about to tell you.
4: To go from that Trey Gowdy to a Trey Gowdy who is saying he's literally counting the number of drives he has left to the airport as a sitting member of Congress and is saying the Republican Party just exists to win. Look, I think he owes us more than that. I think he owes the people of South Carolina. I think he owes the taxpayer more than just fading out with some comments that make us all think that something, something's up, something happened. Now, I understand how this game is played, by the way. I could sit here and I could divine for you what Trey Gowdy's motives are here. That's what a lot of radio hosts do, right? Oh, they can see right through the soul of whoever it is. I'm not going to play that game because I think there are too many different versions of analysis that would be defensible there are so many different ways I could try to explain this that any single way to explain it is just throwing darts at a board. But there's something up. I mean, earlier in the week, and I know that this has gotten a fair amount of attention, you had Trey Gowdy saying basically that Trump should, or not even basically, straight up saying that Trump should sit down with special counsel Mueller and stop acting like someone who has something to hide. I was under the impression before I I heard that clip that Trey Gowdy was a man of the law who understood the power that prosecutors wield, that he was someone who, having had to deal with all of the partisan warfare surrounding Benghazi during the Obama years and the left's efforts to stop at nothing in order to protect Hillary's chances at winning the next presidential election, I figured Trey Gowdy would kind of know the deal, would know what's up. But instead, here we have someone who, look, he has every right to retire to private life. And I'm not trying to malign the man or his reputation. I'm just saying he's putting it out there that there's something really amiss with the GOP. And he's also been very clear that, well, he has an obtuse understanding of what Mueller's purpose is. He's been defending Mueller for a while. I have to wonder why. I think any honest prosecutor who looks at what's happened with the special counsel up to this point would have to say that the partisan agenda and the bias in all of this is quite clear. I don't think that someone got to Gowdy, meaning I'm not going to sit here and do what the left does and pretend that you know Putin has video of him doing weird or unspeakable things and therefore he can just control him, some Kremlin puppet. It's crazy when you say it about someone other than Trump, right? The media thinks it's normal when they say it about Trump, and that's because they have Trump derangement syndrome. But something has happened with Trey Gowdy, and I would like to know what it is. Uh, He's giving very bad legal advice to the president. He's defending Bob Mueller, despite a lot of evidence that Mueller's prosecutors are political hitmen looking to even the score for Hillary's loss, and He's saying some pretty nasty stuff about the GOP and, and his own tenure within the GOP Congress. I will tell you this, though. I said all along, I was very consistent. You can go back if you were so inclined and listen, because everything I say is recorded. Must have been nice in the old days of radio, when, before podcasting at least, when you could say stuff and say whatever you want on the radio. And the station may have had a tape of it, of course, but folks at home didn't. So I could just come on air and say, I predicted that. I saw it coming. I know some hosts who have made entire careers, at least years ago, of, I predicted that. And who really goes back and checks? It's just always so compelling to claim you predicted something. Uh, But if you were to go back, I told everyone who would listen that the Benghazi hearings were doomed to to turn into nothing but a partisan show, that they were effectively a show trial, because once Obama won reelection, there was no hope. There was no hope whatsoever Of any real justice for what happened in Benghazi for the the ineptitude, the cover up afterwards, the lies. Nope. As soon as Obama won reelection was all over. That's why Candy Crowley. Oh, from the fake news, CNN. Decided to insert herself into a real time dispute between presidential candidates during a national nationally televised debate. Because it was all about who won the election. It it did not matter beyond that. So I would just like to know what's up with Trey Gowdy. You know what? We will reach out to him and see if he will come on and explain a little more about what he's thinking. Because I would like to hear from the man himself. You know, I I might have misjudged him. I I thought that he was somebody who would always stand tall and, and tell it like it is. Maybe that was all just for the show. You know, maybe that was all just part of the facade. I don't know. But like I said, he owes us more than just, yeah, the GOP is broken. It just wants to win elections. I didn't accomplish anything, and I can't wait to get out of here. Well, I guess some of you would say, Buck, maybe that is everything he's got to say on it. That's possible, too. That's pretty disheartening. All right, we'll hit a quick break. We'll be uh, right back, team, with a whole lot more.
2: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back.
4: We have a situation here on Chapacortic. There's been an accident.
5: We can't find Mary Jo.
4: What the hell happened last night? I was driving. Do you have any idea? Court of public opinion will have your head on a stake. We tell the truth, or at least our version of it. I want you to know that every effort possible was made to save her.
5: What do we do to help the senator?
2: A dead body holds a lot of secrets. Those can be the difference between guilt and
4: innocence. Are you saying that there's a possibility that maybe she didn't drown? Chappaquiddick, which is out in wide release this weekend, is a very good movie. I watched the whole thing, and just by way of disclosure, they're also an advertiser on this program, but I'm telling you this straight up you should see the movie Um, it's really well done and the story of how teddy kennedy got away with manslaughter involuntary manslaughter is one that should be much more widely known i think than it is so for those who don't know some of the details teddy kennedy back in 1969 The same summer as is made clear in the movie that we had the landing on the moon. Uh, But Teddy Kennedy is the surviving Kennedy after Bobby was assassinated and before that JFK was assassinated. So Kennedy's the senator from the great state of Massachusetts and comes from the political dynasty that is the Kennedy family. Now he is in Martha's Vineyard, a place I actually know. Pretty well. Um, I dated my college sweetheart. Really, was a Martha's Vineyard townie many years ago. So, not only have I spent a fair amount of time on that island, I also have seen the Chappaquiddick Bridge. But back in 1969, Kennedy is at his uh, retreat on Martha's Martha's Vineyard, which, just as an aside, is today one of the most elite and expensive summer getaway places in the entire United States I believe President Obama chose it frequently for his some of his official vacations while president and there are plenty of 20 even 30 million dollar compounds on the island but Kennedy in 69 was there for a regatta in Edgartown which is a very tony very expensive little village on Martha's Vineyard and uh, Kennedy was taking part in this regatta, and there was a, uh, a house where they had arranged a party, and there were some young women who had worked with the Kennedys in the past in politics who were brought to this party, and one of them was Mary Jo Kopechny. There's a pretty good amount of drinking, by all accounts, that occurs, and at some point in the night, Teddy Kennedy decides that he is going to go for a drive with Miss Kopechny, toward a very secluded beach as another aside i can tell you there are private beaches on martha's vineyard to this day that require a key for access and they're considered so private that in at least one of them it's a nude beach because there's no one around and no one going to see you and it's all private but back to teddy he is driving the vehicle and uh, near chappaquiddick uh, island to the chappaquiddick bridge and he Drives off and loses control of the vehicle. It flips over and he is then submerged in water with Mary Jo Kopechny alongside him. He gets out relatively easily. Now, why, you might say, was it so easy? Well, he was in about three feet of water. This was not the ocean. This was not even a deep lake. This was... You could stand in the water, but if you were trapped inside a car, as Mary Jo Kopechny was, you couldn't get the doors open without assistance. And now we look back on this event and see that it was very likely that Mary Jo Kopechny was in the back of this vehicle gasping for air in an air pocket for what some estimate was well over an hour. Teddy Kennedy says he made repeated efforts to help her, But the reality, the record reflects that he did not report this accident for nine hours. He went back to the bungalow where the party was happening and he sought the advice and counsel of a couple of close family, friends and allies who were partying with him there as well. He was told by them to report the incident and did not report the incident until the next day. He even went through a whole series of machinations at a hotel where he changed into different clothing, went down and spoke to the front desk clerk, asked the front desk clerk, what time was it? This was late at night and complained about noise nearby, even though everyone in the hotel was already asleep. He was establishing a fake alibi. The movie Chappaquiddick does a very good job showing all of this. And I have to tell you, it does not uh, come, come off as trying to soft pedal this. It, it, it doesn't really paint a sympathetic portrait of Teddy Kennedy, which is amazing because when you look at the way that his spins, spinmeisters, you know, the guys who he goes to, including Secretary, Secretary of Defense McNamara, other very powerful Massachusetts politicians the whole thing was just a disgusting cover-up they made sure that Kopechny was buried without autopsy they made sure that then Teddy Kennedy could run around saying well you know we have to respect the family's wishes and and they didn't want an autopsy it will never therefore be known officially if she drowned or asphyxiated why is that so essential well If she drowned, it is at least plausible that she was killed relatively quickly, although drowning is never quick. If she asphyxiated, that means that Teddy Kennedy, who to this day it's believed either intended to have an affair with or perhaps, although this was never proven, did have an affair with Teddy Kennedy, allowed a young woman who was the passenger in his vehicle to slowly and horrifically asphyxiate from lack of oxygen while scratching and clawing at the side of a car that wasn't washed out to sea, that didn't flip over from a bridge 50 feet in the air into a river and no one could do anything, was in three feet of standing water in a pond. If Mary Jo asphyxiated, it meant that she slowly died while Kennedy, in a panic, because he was a coward, an alcoholic, a spoiled brat, decided that the single most important thing was not any sense of humanity or dignity or honor, but it was to cover for his political aspirations. The movie Chappaquiddick does a good job of laying all of this out for you. It also shows how craven and easy to manipulate the media was at the time the networks could just receive calls from prominent Democrat officials, connected politicos in the state of Massachusetts, and do as they were told. There was no internet, there was no 24-7 news cycle, no drudge report to inform the American people about what was really happening if the networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, decided that there should be a television blackout on the subject. The major papers were... Amenable to suggestion from the connected Kennedy dynasty. And the movie makes clear that pretty much everyone was cowed by either the desire for power or the fear of power. No one really stood up and did what was right. No one was willing to say enough is enough. There's one family friend who is played by Ed Helms in the movie who was, I believe, adopted by the Kennedy family. He was a cousin And he separated himself from them in real life. I mean, remember, this is based on all the real story. There are some dramatic liberties taken with the storyline, but overwhelmingly the details, and I've read a good amount about this case, are accurate. But my friends, this is a movie that was only made after Teddy Kennedy was the fourth or third longest serving member of the United States Senate of all time. This movie was only made years after the death of someone who the media would unironically refer to as the lion of the Senate. Well, he was lying. All right. Just didn't have a mane. And in that sense, the movie, while it's good, feels like it's quite a bit too late. And it is once again a piece of very compelling evidence that the Kennedy dynasty has received such kid glove treatment from the press and there is this tremendous nostalgia for Camelot and the Kennedys and there's also the excuse for members of the Kennedy family including by the way one who is not nearly as well known but was involved in or I should say guilty of a murder in Greenwich Connecticut that was covered up but that somehow Teddy Kennedy was a victim in all of this a young woman lost her life because of him, but he's the victim? Got more on this coming up. Stay with me.
3: These events, the publicity, innuendo, and whispers which have surrounded them and my admission of guilt this morning raises the question in my mind of whether my standing among the people of my state has been so impaired that I should resign my seat in the United States Senate. If at any time the citizens of Massachusetts Should lack confidence in their senator's character or his ability, with or without justification, he could not, in my opinion, adequately perform his duties and should not continue in office. The people of this state, the state which sent John Quincy Adams and Daniel Webster and Charles Sumner, and Henry Cabot Lodge, and John Kennedy, to the United States Senate, are entitled to representation in that body by men who inspire their utmost confidence.
4: So there was part of the actual statement by then-Senator Ted Kennedy in reference to The Mary Jo Kopechny drowning, a drowning that the senator from Massachusetts was, in fact, responsible for and for which he received nothing more than a two month jail sentence that was suspended. All he had to do was plead guilty to leaving the scene of an accident. If he were not a Kennedy, my friends, they would have certainly given him a much stiffer sentence. He likely would have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. It is overwhelmingly likely he was drunk during the incident in question. It is also overwhelmingly likely that Mary Jo Kopechny could easily have been saved, not just by Teddy, uh, Teddy Kennedy himself, but by the authorities if Kennedy had decided to actually call them right away about the accident. But there was a big political reason behind all this, not just for Kennedy himself, who was really part of this completely dishonest Kennedy mythology that the Democrat Party and its cohorts in the media were responsible for creating. I mean, you could hear it in that statement. He's basically, people of Boston, I stand here apart from you hoping you'll see it in your hearts to forgive me because I love the great state of Massachusetts. Go Red Sox, Yankees suck. And that's pretty much what he did. He fell upon the old, Massachusetts has a great tradition of awesome senators, and oh, by the way, I'm a Kennedy, and JFK was assassinated. So yeah, if if you lose faith in me, I'll step down. But come on, you guys all love me, right? Because I'm a Kennedy. Now, this isn't some minor incident we're talking about here. A woman in her 20s was killed because of Teddy Kennedy's recklessness. But the movie, again, Chappaquiddick, which is in wide release this weekend and which we've had advertising on the show. So I'm very proud to tell you all it, it is a really good movie. The movie shows you that people just didn't really care that this showed what a flawed narcissistic, irresponsible, cowardly, whiskey-sodden creep Teddy Kennedy was. It was all about trying to salvage his political fortunes. He would go on, folks. He would go on to run for president for the, for the Democrat nomination for president in 1980. So after this whole thing, it's not just that he kept his seat in the Senate. The Democrat Party would get behind him as somebody who should be president of the United States. Now, I hate political dynasties. I don't like it with the Bushes. I don't like it with the Clintons. I don't like it with the Kennedys. And I can't help but notice that this movie, as good as it is, and as worthwhile a piece of filmmaking as it is, has not only waited to be made, or I would offer to you as probably impossible to get made, until after Teddy Kennedy died. But it has been made quite clear recently that there really isn't a Kennedy to take up the family name in terms of a political dynasty. They don't have someone new to rally around. They don't have someone who can take up the mantle of Camelot. And so for Democrats, it's a relatively safe time for this movie to be out there. But I can't help but look at this and think about how, to this day, the Democrat Party and the mainstream media don't understand why we don't care whenever they decide to start wagging the finger of moral outrage in our direction. The Democrat Party, for decades, stretching back well before I was born, has been completely willing not just to overlook, but to be complicit in lying about and covering up the worst kinds of personal behavior, as long as it was a Democrat politician who was useful for the cause. And I think people this this factors into our discussions right now, folks, about what's going on with the Trump administration. I think people are sick of the right having its principles and at least its efforts to put forward ethical and decent candidates used against it you know you always hear on the right there's hypocrisy and when when it comes to moral you know individual conduct and what i always think is no it's just that people on the right are imperfect but at least try to have some standards on the left for politicians there's no standards at all the clintons the kennedys john edwards anthony weiner you go down the list And they will back these people to the hilt. There are still journalists, lots of them, running around, chin-wagging about how they speak truth to power, who were sucking up to Teddy Kennedy till the very last days. The Lion of the Senate, they would call him. They would excuse any failing, any putrid revelation about what a scummy person he was because he was a Kennedy and he was useful for pushing the progressive cause. Go see Chappaquiddick, my friends. You'll be happy you did. Can someone explain to me why the royal wedding is important? I really mean that. Why do I keep seeing news stories about the royal wedding? You know, it's like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, they're going to like, be walking down the aisle together and it's going to be beautiful to see them hanging out together. I don't know who likes this. I don't know who thinks this is important, but I know the media covers it. Look, I see pretty much every outlet in one way or another doing stories on the the upcoming royal wedding. And I see this as just, I don't know, a, a vestige of some kind of uh, longing for monarchy that people have? I don't know. I only know about this because really, uh, one Miss Molly is up on all the latest here and whenever I ask her about these things she's like you don't understand, you're curmudgeonly and old. And then also she looks like Meghan Markle except obviously way prettier. So sometimes people will say when they see us together, don't you look like Meghan Markle? And she says Well, thank you. I just think it's kind of funny that that there's still a a fixation on this. The New York Times did this whole frequently asked questions about what's going on. You know, when is it? It's, oh, it's May 19th, for those who are wondering. And it is scheduled for 7 a.m. Eastern time. So you can, if you get up on that Saturday early in the morning, you can watch. Oh, look at it together. They're going to be joining in holy matrimony for the duration of all of their lives, and they will spend countless hours waving to adoring crowds, attending charity events, and generally serving the purpose of having no real purpose at all. I guess it's kind of a fun idea for some people, the notion of uh, being, being a royal, where you get to be super rich and famous just for existing. You, you literally inherit it. Increasingly in this country, we're starting to see that there is not a royal family, but something of an oligarchy, a rule by the ultra rich and connected. And their power is such that the children of those royals in terms of their bank accounts and reach never have to achieve anything or be particularly spectacular. And everyone, even in America, will treat them like they are fantastic, although maybe in some ways this isn't really new. Uh, It's just different. I was talking to you before about the Kennedys and people refer to Camelot, a reference to the uh, fictional kingdom of King Arthur. But I just wonder when America and the Western world will grow entirely tired of this weird celebration of monarchy that our media engages in. You know, we had our we had our, our shot with the monarchy back in 1776 and we decided to take some shots at their representatives who were wearing red coats, if you recall. And by the way, last night, actually, I was watching the Mel Gibson movie The Patriot, also known as Braveheart Takes America. And I got to say, it holds up pretty well. It's actually one of those rare movies that I think I liked a little more after seeing it for the first time. I also kind of wonder why they didn't just use Bannister Tarleton for the name of the evil british cavalry guy they call him tavington i think in the movie and he just goes around murdering people and lighting churches on fire after stuffing him full of the colonials so he's clearly like a really bad guy and he's based on banister tarleton so i don't know why they just didn't call him tarleton seems weird to me then again they never refer to mel gibson as the swamp fox even though his character is based on the swamp fox that movie holds together pretty well although I i will say that there are a couple of near misses where the main bad guy gets shot with a musket. And I'm like, you know, you can call me crazy, but a musket ball back in the time we're talking about here was a pretty big, heavy bullet. And if you took one in the arm, right, even if it went through and through, as the Tavington or Tarleton character does when he's squaring off against Mel Gibson... I doubt you'd be able to just engage in extended hand-to-hand combat and just be fine, you know? I think a musket ball through... By the way, he takes one that kind of grazes him, fair enough, at the waist level, and then later, like a day or... I don't know how long it is later, actually. It might be months later. Who cares? He takes a musket ball, though, straight through the arm before he fights with Mel Gibson. I also don't like the way the final fight scene ends. I don't like that... They do this in some movies where, you know, the the good guy is about to lose. And then at the last second, you know, as the bad guy is gloating, the good guy finally takes him out. I just think that's a little bit of a cheesy way to go. I would have preferred it if Mel Gibson had just taken him out. You know, it does a really great job with its final fight scene. Last, the Mohicans. There's no like, yeah, you know, it's close. The good guys. It's like that old Mohican guy does like a crazy somersault flip thing and he just wastes the bad mohawk guy like there's no ifs ands or buts that's the way it should go in my opinion also a big last of the Mohicans fan for whatever that's worth i've also decided that this weekend i'm gonna poke around and see having finished the novel frankenstein never signed it in school and just got around to it now i'm 36 years old how that novel by mary shelley turned into like this big green monster that walks slowly and has bolts in its neck i know it must be just a movie adaptation but i'm going to do a little bit of a deep dive into this because he's never frankenstein as you all know is the scientist who creates the monster the monster is never given a name it's usually referred to as the demon in in the novel Uh, but the demon speaks like a character reciting shakespeare and has very complicated emotions and thoughts So how it turned into, uh, you know, Frankenstein monster that we all know that moves slowly and walks very weirdly. uh, I need to look into that one. I'm assuming it's just a bad movie adaptation. All right. Now that I've really gone random in this segment, it's time to hear from all of you. Let you guys go random with Roll Call. The show
2: ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call.
4: Hey, I just wanted to give you a heads up, team, that I will be on the Greg Gutfeld show for the first time this Saturday at 10 p.m. Eastern on Fox News. You know, Greg was the first guy to ever have me on air at Fox when I was just a a cub website reporter for the Blaze. uh, Greg brought me on red eye and I I became something of a uh, of a fan favorite among the preppy guys with side parts that red eye would put on on tv no I, I really did enjoy it it was a great show and it was what gave us the shagging wagon the shagging wagon story is one that i will have to tell on this show at some point so you will know what the old red eye fans are talking about let's just say i'm waiting for wood paneled station wagons to come back into style and okay now i said or rather our announcer friend told you it's time for roll call and so it is Steven, first up here, oh wait, before I get into it, remember facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, we read them, we write, I was going to say we write as many on the air, we read them, and then we put as many on air as we can. Uh, Steven writes, hey Buck, Shields High, love the show, you're my favorite by far of all radio hosts. In reference to the book discussion, you should really check out the Chronicles of Narnia series. I've read it three or four times now. It's got the magical action and adventure of your beloved Lord of the Rings, but also mixes in good Christian theology. Did you know that Tolkien and Lewis were good friends at Oxford, and it's rumored that the two series were products of a competition to write the best Christian fiction novel? Clearly, Lewis won that one. I'll also send the uh, second The Last Man Standing recommendation. Keep up the good work and on-site shows. Maybe one of these days you'll be in my area, and I'll get the opportunity to shake your hand. Until then, shields high. Well, Stephen, it'd be great to meet you and your family uh, anytime I'm in the area, and would would be an honor. Uh, as to Lord of the Rings, I just saw today, apparently Amazon is planning a billion-dollar scripted Lord of the Rings series. So if you didn't get enough from the nine hours or so of Lord of the Rings movies... There's going to be a billion dollar budget for that's right, a budget. They're not hoping it makes a billion dollars. They are spending a billion dollars, according to what I read today on a Lord of the Rings series. You know, I remember a long time ago seeing a cartoon. I rented it because I love the book series so much. It was a cartoon of the Lord of the Rings, but I only made it through the first cassette, the part where Boromir dies. Boiler alert.
1: I see your mind.
2: You will take the reins sound on! You will betray
1: us. You go to your death.
2: And the death of us all. Curse you. Curse you. And all the place!
4: <laughs> that was, of course, from the Peter Jackson movie adaptation of it, but I just felt like throwing in a Boromir soundbite, because why not? I remember watching the Hobbit cartoon many times as well. But I will give it a shot. I will uh, try your recommendation for the Chronicles of Narnia, when I can get to the lower, sta- lower end of the stack of novels that I currently have. Next up here, we have Jeremy, who writes, Following up on the story about college kids' uh, homelessness and going hungry, you're able to take student loans to pay for room and board, board being food. I never had student loans, but plenty, plenty of my friends did. Some of them would use their student loan money for other recreational things besides buying food. They would spend a lot of time at the bars and such. If this is truly an issue, then may- maybe Sally Mae should have tighter rules on how money is spent to include tuition or something like that. Shields, High, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy, thank you. And that was what I thought, too. I know that people are able to take loans out that also cover room and board. So I- I'm surprised if somebody was getting a degree, they're able to take out the loans they're, they're, they're homeless and don't have enough food. That, that to me seems, the story just doesn't really add up as presented in that article I read to you. Uh, next up, we have James. About your little segment about 12% of community college students being homeless, I work full-time and do 9 to 12 credits a semester. I'll have my associates this year and my bachelor's in about 2.5 more. Between the Pell Grant and tuition reimbursement from work, my tuition and books are covered 100%. Granted, my tuition is cheap, but still, no student loans to my name, and I'm three years into the game. It'll take me longer, but it's better than being homeless or tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Just saying that it's possible, despite what everyone says. That's from James. Well, James, first of all, high five, and congrats for doing it the right way and doing it a smart way. Uh, And I'm glad to hear from more folks like you who are part of Team Buck who are still getting their degrees who are making smart decisions along the way. And it also adds to my suspicion that this article about how students are homeless and starving college students, mind you. Right. These are adults that, that, that are getting they're paying for an education that is in addition to high school. And they're they don't have a place to live and they're starving or I shouldn't say starving, but, you know, malnourished or whatever the terminology, hungry in some capacity. Uh, I find that strange under the circumstances, considering you can borrow Anyone can borrow tens of thousands of dollars. Doesn't mean it's a good idea, but you can borrow tens of thousands of dollars for um, college. Our friend Gentry from Oregon up next year. Hey, Buck. Excellent story about immigration on Thursday's show. And yes, the only reason Democrats are so interested is because they want the votes. But I don't think they're thinking this through entirely. They seem to think flooding the country with illegal immigrants from south of the border is going to secure their political legacy but I see a different outcome. The vast majority of these people, while likely to give a gratuity vote of some sorts for a couple of election cycles, will be from two different groups. Those who come from a very conservative culture and those who have seen firsthand the collapse of socialism and communism, of which the net left now openly subscribes. I don't see them backing those who call their culture toxic or promise our socialism will be the real socialism this time. The left seems incapable yet again of looking down the road more than a decade. As always, keep up the fantastic job. I'll keep listening. Shields high from Gentry. Uh, thanks a lot, buddy. Look, I, I can appreciate your analysis. I don't think that it's likely to be correct on this one. People have said for a long time, for example, that because Mexico and Central America are overwhelmingly Catholic countries, that there would be a surge of uh, social issues voting among Latinos and Hispanics that come into America and that they're a natural constituency for uh, the Republican Party in that regard. What we see time and again, though, is that that's just not true. And we've been seeing it for a long time. And the numbers haven't really changed. Uh, Mexico, Central America, they are uh, different cultures than ours. And the notion of getting the government to give you stuff is not something that is philosophically Uh, abhorrent in either of those places. So conservatism has a tough road to go with immigrants uh, from Central America, from Latin America in general, and has not been very successful yet. The exception to this, as I know some of you are probably yelling uh, as you're hearing me say this, has been Cuba, which is a country that because of its very much firsthand experience of totalitarianism and communism, uh, those who have come to this country from Cuba have a particular and acute appreciation for freedom, for rule of law, for liberty, and this is why we have a large constituency, particularly of uh, Floridians who are of Cuban extraction, who are not just a little conservative. I know some Cubans, including including uh, uh, Cubans who, well, were at the Bay of Pigs, who are as conservative as anyone you will ever find on the right. Next up, we have a note here from Nicholas. Sean Hannity has said he will debate any talking head, top talking head on the left. I pray someone like Jim Acosta has Sean Hannity or you on their show. Keep up the great work in Shields High. Well, Nicholas, two things. One, I don't doubt for a second that Sean would go toe to toe with any talking head. Two, The big names on the left just won't do it. They will not take the risk. They'd much rather stay in their safe little, uh, well, in their leftist safe spaces and sit atop their progressive perches and just keep counting the dollars as they come rolling in. Um, They will not. I mean, just look at, for example, how Anderson Cooper never had me on his show in two years of being an employee of CNN. And there are others that Jake Tapper never had me on his show in two years of being at CNN based on resume and exposure alone. Uh, that's inexplicable. Unless those producers were savvy enough to understand I'm a little too much for those journalists who are in many cases glorified catalog models to handle. So with that bit of wisdom, I'm going to close up shop here in the freedom hut for the weekend. Please do tell a friend about the show. Explain them. They can listen live on the iHeart app anytime they want, or they can download the podcast of the Buck Sexton Show on iTunes. Have a great weekend, everyone. I'll see you Monday. Shields high.